This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My name is Matt Smith, and I coordinate the Ethics in Young Lecture Series. Our guest today is Professor Paul Robinson, who is the Richard W. Lyman Professor in the Humanities. Uh, he graduated from Harvard with his Ph.D. in 1968 and has been at Stanford since 1967. Uh, his research interests include psychoanalysis, the history of ideas about human sexuality, particularly gays and lesbians, and the connection between intellectual history and the history of opera. Uh, he's the teacher of the highly popular course, uh, Gay Autobiography. Uh, his latest book, Queer Wars, The New Gay Right, Right and Its Critics, came out last year. And among other awards, he's won the Dean's Award for Excellence in Teaching, the Dinkelspiel Award for Outstanding Service to Undergraduate Education, and he was a Guggenheim Fellow. Uh, his talk today is entitled From Gay Liberation to Gay Marriage, so let's all welcome Professor Robinson. Uh, well, I'm going to talk quite informally uh, on this topic for maybe, I don't know, half an hour, 35 minutes. 45 minutes, and then invite you to ask questions or make, make comments. Um, I, I'm a historian. I'm in the history department here, all of my chairs, a humanities chair. But uh, historians always want to begin by telling people what their sources are for their what they're going to say. And my sources here are somewhat eclectic, but as I reflected on this, I realized the first source is obviously my own life. Uh, that is my life as a gay man. Uh, and in particular, the fact that I moved to, uh, when I came to Stanford, as Matt said, in 1967, I lived in San Francisco, and I came with a, what we would now call a partner. In those days, that word hadn't been invented yet. Significantly, you referred to this person in those days as your lover. Probably tells you something about how the times have changed. <laughs> but I came with a partner, I uh, was in my late 20s, and I lived there for the first 21 years that I taught at Stanford. I commuted down here, which means that I lived in... Uh, in a community that was becoming very central to the, the you know, gay population, the gay movement in this country, in San Francisco. Uh, there was a huge burgeoning in the number of gay men and women living in San Francisco during the time I was there. The, what we think of now as gay neighborhoods came into existence in this period. When I first got there, there was no such thing as the Castro, or it was a place where Italian immigrants lived. In the, my lifetime in the 70s, it became what it is today. That is a, 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 you know, a, a neighborhood largely occupied by gay men and women. Uh, a, a gay, um, what would you call it, economic and social and uh, business community came into existence. So there were, you know, restaurants and stores and obviously bars and so forth in increasing numbers. Uh, and in, by the end of the decade, end of the 1970s, uh, gays were an important force in political life in San Francisco, at least, and I think even increasingly nationally. There was a, a famously elected gay uh, su supervisor who was, of course, murdered in what became an, uh, a national episode in 1978, Harvey Milk. Uh, and by the 1980s, when I, I lived there until 1988, it was also the center, I think it's fair to say, of the, of the AIDS epidemic, which began in 1981 and reached its uh, apogee in the late 80s, early 90s. So I, you know, this is very much part of my life, and uh, as a citizen of that town, even though I was working down here at Stanford. So a lot of what I have to say today sort of is, has to do with what I took in in those years and the years since then as well, even after I moved down to Stanford in, in 1988. 
Uh, a second source for me is, uh, uh, and you know, we're not, we're, you shouldn't always rely on your own experiences as, uh, as a basis for historical generalizations. But a second source is in the, in the last decade, I've made aspects of this story, of the, of the gay story, the subject of my scholarship. My earlier scholarship has indicated to do mainly with the history of psychoanalysis, with Freud, and with um, opera and its connection with, with the history of ideas. But in the last decade, I've written two books that are, that are focused on aspects of, of gay experience. And I should stress that I, I've continued, as I've written them, I've written them from the point of view of an intellectual historian. That is, I'm not a historian of, uh, of political or, or social life. I'm a person who works with, with artifacts, with written artifacts, with books, published books. Uh, and I've, the, when I've come to look at these aspects of the gay story, I've looked not at uh, you know, what people were doing, to put that in the rudest form, but at, at what people were writing and saying about this subject. So I was looking at intellectuals, uh, theorists, uh, uh, political leaders, and things like that. The, the two books, uh, the first book which I published in 1999 is called Gay Lives. It's a, a large book, but it's essentially a study of autobiographies written by gay men over the last century, really, although most of them, as you might imagine, come from the last 20 or 30 years, in the last part of the 20th century. It's not just about uh, American figures. It treats, comparatively, autobiographies written by British figures, by French figures, and by Americans. And one of the purposes of the book, in fact, is precisely to establish a kind of comparative perspective. And I argue in the book that the American autobiographies, the American narratives, which date from the 1970s to, to the present, have a distinct character, and they're different from these British and, and uh, French autobiographies, some of which were written earlier. So that book has influenced how my, my version of the story. And then, uh, as Matt pointed out, more recently, last year I published a book which is, uh, bears the title Queer Wars, but the subtitle, which is more uh, instructive, I suppose, is The New Gay Right and Its Critics. Uh, and it's a study of what I've decided was a, a very important develop in, in, development in the gay intellectual and ideological, and you could say political world, in the last decade, and that is the emergence of gay conservatives. So in this book, what I do is I look at the most prominent of these gay conservative intellectuals, uh, in particular uh, De uh, Andrew Sullivan, whom some of you, I'll talk about a little bit more later on, who you may know, a very important blogger. I think he's the most prominent blogger in, in the world right now. That is, that his blog gets more hits than anybody else's in, in the world. Uh, and he you know, writes books as well. And from in the early 1990s, he was the editor of the New Republic uh, magazine. So he's become a kind of important figure in, in our intellectual life, in our political life. And I, uh, the, the, the reading of these intellectuals and thinking about the, this phenomenon of gay conservatism in the last decade has been a source for, this, for the story I'm going to tell you in, in brief. And then finally, and Matt also alluded to this, in the last, since about 2000, in the last half decade, I have every year been teaching a freshman seminar on the subject of gay autobiography in which the students, usually about 25 each year because I teach two incarnations of it, read autobiographies by gay men and gay women. My book is just about men, but the, the course we look at both women, uh, gay, gay men and lesbians. And so I hear, I've been privy, as it were, to a discussion of these issues by Stanford undergraduates over the course of the last five years, and I've you know, learned from them about how their experiences are different from the experiences of previous generations, and that's uh, contributed to my sense of what the story is. In addition, each of these students has been asked 
as the, the written part of the course, to write an autobiography of his or her own. They're not told they have to write a sexual autobiography or an autobiography about being gay or straight, but they've uh, tended to do that. So in a certain sense, I think I've read between 100 or 200 of these now in, in the course of the last five years, and although I've thrown them all away or returned them to the students, you know, they've accumulated in my head a certain... I've garnered from them also um, parts of the way I think about this, this narrative. And I'm very happy to be very happy to answer questions about this course. The way the course has changed over the course of the five years that I've taught it is, is to me very interesting. And especially as you probably know, if you're undergraduates, in, to get into a freshman seminar, you have to write an application in which you explain why you want to take the course and why, it, it, what qualifications, as it were, you you have. Uh, so you you know you have a certain picture of, of, of at least the applicant pool uh, to this course that you wouldn't have in an ordinary lecture course where people just sh show up. And, they, and the, 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 these, in my case, the course has been competitive, and I've had many more applications than I've had students in the class. All right, those are my, that's what I'm uh, getting my story from. Uh, I have a fairly s simple narrative to suggest, and it's, uh, again, I stress not the story of how gay men and gay women have behaved, but the way thinking about this subject has manifested itself, and the way it's found its way into political action, into a kind of, of, of movement, uh, which has, as you may well know, lobby, lobbying organizations uh, uh, that collect money and advance the you know, gay causes before the Congress and, and, uh, and in state legislatures and so forth. It has, it, it, in the 70s, it became a political movement, and it continues to have a political dimension to this day. But in, 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 and I'm interested in the way this political story has changed. When when the gay movement began in the very late 1960s, and then in particular in the 1970s, when it sort of got its political legs, uh, the most important thing to know about it, for you to know about it, is that it came as the third installment on a series of political movements that grew out of the, 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 the increasingly radical politics of the 1960s. It was the third of what, in retrospect, we now think of as identity uh, politics, or movements based on identity politics, as politics that are based on your sense of who you are and think, making that the centerpiece of your political commitment and political action. Obviously, the first of these movements, and historically the most important, was the civil rights movement. Uh, of the early 1960s, in which African Americans made this issue the centerpiece of their political uh, endeavors. Uh, the second manifestation was the, was the uh, women's liberation movement, is known then or more historically as the women's movement, in which the issue of gender was made the, the, the principle of unity in political action. And, you know, and uh, the final gay, gay liberation then came along as a kind of obvious extension of logical extension of this identity politics to a, a group that felt equally or as uh, you know, comparably uh, oppressed and in need of, uh, of uh, political action, uh, gays and lesbians. Uh, now, of course, there's no single person sort of or iconic figure that's associated with, with the gay liberation movement in the same way that, let's say, Martin Luther King is associated with uh, the civil rights movement or even someone like Betty Friedan, who of course died this week, was associated with, with women's liberation and the women's movement, at least as, at, the, at an intellectual level. Uh, I, maybe the closest we've had to that is somebody like Larry Kramer, who's somewhat younger and didn't really become a figure in public life until the 1980s. Uh, so it, it doesn't, you know, doesn't have exactly the same form, but it had, in the sense of having a, a, an obvious leadership figure. But nonetheless. Uh, 
anybody who was around in the 19, late 1960s and the 1970s, particularly if you lived on the East Coast in New York City or Washington, D.C., or on the West Coast, like in San Francisco or Los Angeles, would have been aware that there was this kind of uh, rising consciousness among gay men and lesbians, which was taking the form of what has been correctly referred to as a movement. And at the time, it tended to be referred to in imitation of the women's movement as the gay liberation movement. Uh, and uh, I think it's fair to say that the centerpiece of this movement and what distinguished it from the two preceding identity movements was, of course, the fact that gayness, unlike African-Americanness or femaleness, was or at least was perceived to be invisible. This was not a population that you could identify visually in most respects. It's actually more complicated than that, but this is certainly the common perception. And indeed, the issue of invisibility became the central issue from the point of view of the, of the people sort of leading and intellectually, I'm speaking now, this movement, because they came to the conclusion that the, the, the foremost problem, the central problem of the gay population in this country was precisely that it was invisible, which was theorized in terms of it being in the closet. The closet is a is a, a, a metaphor to, to sing, indicate this invisibility, and it also suggests that the invisibility, from the point of view of these um, thinkers, was largely self-imposed. <coughs> that it was chosen by gays and lesbians themselves, obviously as a way of protecting themselves against the oppression and discrimination that they felt that they would experience if, in fact, they were visible. Logically, I suppose you could say the, the centerpiece of gay politics and what you had to do about this problem of invisibility and therefore oppression, the centerpiece became coming out of the closet, became the issue of declaring your identity and declaring it central and you know existentially absolutely unavoidable to your identity, and that in, until you could do that without suffering. Uh, legal or you know, so, social discrimination, uh, you could not consider yourself an authentic, a realized, uh, 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 a full, a full citizen. So the the issue of the closet as the problem and coming out as the solution is absolutely central to everybody's, I think, conception of what's going on, particularly in the 1970s. Uh, I, uh, you know, I remember this as being this way, and uh, of course it's very. It turns out to be much more complicated because coming out. Declaring yourself is always a matter of degree and audience. That is to say, who are you coming out to? Well, if you're coming out to your gay friends in San Francisco, it's not exactly a, much of a hurdle. Um, <laughs> but if you're coming out, let's say, to your parents or to your classmates at school or your, pe your co colleagues in business, you know, it obviously much more is involved and it's much more precarious. So when people talk about coming out, they had all kinds of qualifications about, you know, you start little... But ideally, what you do is you come out to everybody. Uh, you know, you come out publicly. You come out on, on television or you come out on, in a book. Uh, and one, uh, let me give you sort of a concrete example so it doesn't sound completely abstract. I, it's a book I teach in my course. And it's probably the most important of all, uh, and certainly most influential of all gay autobiographies, which the book was published now a long time ago, in 1973, called The Best Little Boy in the World. And it's a very interesting book. It's written by a man named Andrew Tobias. He was born in 1947, so he's now what, just about turned 60. Uh, he made a, had a career in the, starting in the 70s and the 80s as a, a financial uh, uh, columnist in 
Newsweek and various other journals. And he wrote a very successful financial book. I think it's called The Only only money, only money book you need to buy or something. And he sold millions of copies, and he got rich as a financial advisor. Uh, when he was 24 years old, uh, he decided to write this book about his life as a gay man. He did not sign his name to it, however. Even in, in I have here a 1993 version of the book, a, a paperback edition of the book. And you can, if you look, if you can see far enough, you can see it's not written by Andrew Tobias. It's written by a fellow named John Reed which is a pseudonym. And that is to say, even when he wrote this book, which is all about coming out, he wasn't prepared to sign his name to it. He says because he didn't want to embarrass his parents, whom he had not yet come out to. I suspect he didn't want to ruin his career as a financial uh, advisor in the 1970s. That it, uh, and he finally fessed up to this title, and you can find it now. If you buy the book today, you'll find his, own, his real name, Andrew Tobias, on it. it. He finally did this in the late 1990s after he had, in fact, gone to the Renaissance weekends with the Clintons, and since then has become a kind of figure in the Democratic Party. He was the treasurer of the National Democratic Party in 2000, in fact, and has had a career as a kind of guy on you know, the moderate left, uh, but only late, late in life. So coming out, even though that's his theme, was not easy for him. Uh, uh, this book is a very, he, it's actually aimed at straight people. He, it's a book that he wrote with the idea of persuading straight people that they should stop oppressing uh, gay people like himself. And it tells the story of his life up through uh, going to college and his first year as a working in business uh, after, after college. He also misrepresents his college years, and it tells you in the book that he went to Yale from, I guess, 64 to 68, but he, in fact, went to Harvard. And this is, again, to keep certain things secret. Uh, but the, the, the dramatic thing in the, things in the book are the moment when he goes into the closet and the moment when he comes out. He tells you here, uh, maybe not quite believably, that when he was 11 years old, no date, there's not a single date in this book, but you can figure out if you know when he was born that this must have been 1958. Uh, he was at a, 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 there was a party at his family's house. His father's mother had a, had a cocktail party or dinner party. They're, they're living in, in uh, I think, the Upper East Side of New York City. They're well, a well-to-do family. And he says he heard two, mem two, two guests at the party in conversation, one snippet of which was, it can't possibly be true what Alfred Kinsey said, that 10% of the population is gay. He claims he overhears this at the, at the party. And the minute he overheard it, he knew, I'm one of them. And from that moment, he says, when he's 11, for the next decade until he's 21, which includes high school and college, all of his mental energy went into keeping this a secret, which was a lot of work. It was the main thing on his mind, keeping this a secret. And it, he, 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 you know, he describes brilliantly and amusingly the various efforts he went through, like doing athletics and dating girls and so forth, to try to keep this a secret, and succeeded in keeping it a secret. Until so, so, rather suddenly, when he was 21, after having been to college and so forth, he decided this would have been what, 69, 68, 69, the year, year 1968, 69. He couldn't do it any longer. He could not bear this lie any longer, and he decided he was going to tell people this fact about himself. To me, the most striking thing about this decision, uh, when I read it at the time, I read it in the, in the 70s, was that he made this decision that he was going to come out. And he started by telling his you know, a close friend, and he told all of his friends, and then he told other classmates 
but not yet his parents. The thing that's most interesting to me about the decision, and most mysterious, is that he made it before he had had so much as held hands with another man or boy. That is to say, it was made in isolation of sexual experience and simply on the basis of desire and self-conception. And indeed, he became an expert at coming out. To, you know, he, he, learned, he got a routine in which he did this uh, long before he had, had, a, had a, a homosexual sexual experience. And as it turned out, in fact, when he finally got turned to that issue of, you know, now I've talked about it, now I've got to do it too. It turned out that was even harder. <laughs> it was more work than had been the, the coming out process. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about this coming out, this, this narrative that he relates to his friends and others, is that far from reacting with horror and disgust and, you know, disowning him, every single person he told us to said, that's fine. I'm so glad you told me. Uh, I, it doesn't make a bit of difference. And they continued to treat, treat him as, you know, as, as a bosom friend. So you wonder, you, you start asking yourself, why was he, did he, was he so terrified? when he heard this information in 19, when he was 11 years old. Why did he expend all his energy when, in fact, the revelation wasn't traumatic at all? And, of course, the reason it wasn't traumatic is that the historical circumstance in which he made the revelation after 1969, the cultural situation was very different from the one in which he'd made the decision to go into the closet in 1958. The difference between a period of profound repression of this issue in American society to a moment when, in fact, things are starting to change, when the gay movement is beginning, when, uh, you know, it, at least in certain elite places like Yale and Harvard on the East Coast or the West Coast, the attitude of the, you know, of the people you're likely to meet, to meet is going to be far less prejudicial than it would have been a decade earlier. He, he's quite oblivious to that change, at least at the level at which he tells the story. He acts like he's just lucky he has such nice friends who treated him so well. He thinks it's an accident of, of biography or of, of his own story when, in fact, it's a historical change that is, that is taking place. But anyway, this book puts the issue of the closet and coming out of the closet at the center of what a gay man has to do if he wants to have, lead an authentic life. Uh, I'm, 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 as almost everybody does, I'm telling this story mainly from the, the male point of view because it's where well, the, it, of course I know that story better. It's the story that has uh, produced the greatest amount of literature. Although there is obviously a, fe you know, a lesbian variation of it, which in many respects is the same, although it has interesting differences as well. Now, there are two other dimensions, I think, of this, what I'm calling the gay liberation movement of the 1970s, besides coming out, besides... Uh, uh, entering the realm of discourse, if you will, that become part of what the movement stands for. Not everyone thinks the same way, but it, it, in its public manifestations, they become important in the way the movement configures itself in the 1970s. The first is the issue of gender. And that is, for some uh, gay men and women, and certainly for the for the, the 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 way the movement articulated itself in in, in a kind of political dimension, in the 1970s, uh, the issue wasn't just that that of sexual orientation and, and whom you were going to have sex with and so forth. It was also the question of gender presentation, in particular the, the defense of quote unquote effeminacy in men, 
and mannishness in women, or the right, in fact, to deviate from what were the gender expectations uh, uh, of the population at large. And this is where the gay liberation movement was, in fact, quite heavily reliant, at least intellectually, on the women's liberation movement, which had raised the issue of gender and suggested that it was a construction, that it was tendentious and so forth. Uh, and uh, so part of the way that the, the gay liberation you know, figured itself in the 70s was to say we not only must come out of the closet, we must also defend the right of people to have different forms of gender manifestation, different forms of gender presentation. Uh, and this, in this dimension of the movement, a couple of things figured quite prominently. The first was that, in retrospect, an event that occurred in 1969 came to be seen, it wasn't seen so at the time because nobody knew about it, but in retrospect it came to be viewed as a kind of foundation moment, foundation event in the gay liberation movement. And that was a riot that occurred at a gay bar in New York City, in, the, in Greenwich Village, uh, in 1969, in the summer of 1969, significantly on the day after Judy Garland died, uh, so people think anyway, in, in which the patrons of this gay bar, that is called the Stonewall Inn, resisted the police. And they, you know, there were a couple, three days of, of, uh, of modest violence, you might say. You know, property was destroyed. Nobody was killed or anything like that. Uh, but in retrospect, this, this became a kind of, you know, the way these things can, a kind of uh, uh, watershed moment in the, in the gay imagination. It's, people talk about Stonewall to this day as a kind of the, somehow the beginning moment of gay liberation. And significantly, one year later to the date, the first gay pride parade was celebrated in New York City in honor of the Stonewall riots. So the Stonewall riots of 69 became the foundation moment for these gay, gay uh, pride parades, which, as you know, are done uh, occur yearly to this day uh, uh, in places like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and are big deals. I mean, hundreds of thousands, even millions of people are involved in these parades or go to them. Now, the reason I put, put this, these events under the rubric of gender is because um, one of the crucial things about the Stonewall riots is that many, if not most, of the patrons in this bar were drag queens, were men dressed as women or men, you know, acting flamboyantly in a, in a feminine manner. So, it, you know, the issue of gender was it were, and gender deviancy or gender presentation was in play in what in retrospect was seen as this foundational movement. And any of you who've been to a great gay pride parade will know that the issue of gender deviancy is central to the way the, the pride is put together. It begins with what are called dykes on bikes, which are, uh, you know, lesbians of a certain sort. It's full of people in drag. It's full of people, you know, wearing uh, cross-dressing and so on and so forth. Uh, so that it ha it's not just about sexual orientation. It's also about this issue of, 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 uh, of gender. A th a th what I see now in retrospect is a third element in gay liberation. Again, not everybody subscribed to this, but it was certainly um, present, was the question of sexual behavior, in, in particular a kind of critique of the monogamous sexual style of heterosexuals and a defense of a certain kind of sexual adventuring. This is not incompatible, of course, with the notion, which I think the vast majority of gay men and women had, that you were looking for a partner, in those days a lover, to settle down with and to sort of do, do your version of the American you know, uh, family story, that is, you, you and your partner living in a house, having a life together. Uh, but early on, it also included a sense that our, our partnering is going to be different from that of uh, heterosexuals, and it's going to make a place within it 
for dealing with the, you know, the, the desire for sexual adventure, for sexual uh, multiplicity, for what a critic would call promiscuity. Uh, so there, there, there was a kind. There was even among I would put it of the radical fringe or the people on the left in the gay movement, the notion that gays would serve as a model for heterosexuals to get over their old puritanical and monogamous ways. That in fact, gay gay relationships would be uh, you know have, have a kind of utopian component. That they would help the poor benighted straights out because <laughs> they would see there was a better way to live your life and to deal with this issue. Now again, this was articulated only by, you know, as you can imagine, some people within the gay movement, but it became associated with the movement, and of course it found expression in the way that gays in San Francisco and New York and other places actually behaved in, in, in their sexual lives uh, with you know, not always happy consequences. So you have these three elements in. Uh, coming out of the closet, declaring your identity, the issue of gender, presentation, gender deviancy, and sexual variety. As you can well imagine, to the extent that this kind of a movement found political response in our you know, established political parties, it was of interest only to those on the left, to the left wing of the Democratic Party, actually to only to a few in the north, northeast and, and the far west. Uh, it gradually became, you know, Got more and more, found more and more voice within the Democratic Party. But there's no question that the gay liberation movement, like the women's liberation movement before it, and civil rights before it, was a movement that, that if it had any political friends, if it had a political position in the country, it was on the left, on, on the left wing of the, of the Democratic Party. So you know, if you were automatically a Democrat, if you were at all engaged in this issue, because they were the only one that even had an inkling that this might be part of their, their platform. Uh, so that was a, if you look back in retrospect, that was a kind of political configuration. Now, jump forward to the 1990s, to na the last decade. The, the picture is very, very different, I would suggest. And in fact, I became, when I was actually writing the book on gay autobiography, I became intrigued by the fact that what was the most obviously novel development within the gay world, and particularly that that infringed upon politics, was the emergence of gay conservatives. The, the most obvious and you know sort of practical manifestation of this was the log cabin club within the Republican Party, which was gay Republicans uh, who wanted their party to break with its long-standing homophobic and you know anti-homosexual position and get with the program on this on this issue of, of, of sexual politics. But then, uh, to me, more, even more interesting was the emergence of these intellectuals, that is, people you know serious people who write books, uh, arguing for. Uh, a kind of gay conservatism. And I'll mention two here. I've, I've alluded already to, to Andrew Sullivan. Actually, the first guy who, who, who did this, at least in, in book-length form, was a, a fellow named Bruce Bauer, that's B-A-W-E-R, uh, who in 1993 published a book called A Place at the Table, which is really a critique of gay liberation and a defense of gay conservatism. Uh, the common denominator between these gay conservatives and the people who you know, we associate with gay liberation two decades earlier is that the closet is still the problem and coming out is still the sine qua non of being a gay, you know, being with it, being authentic. So Bruce Bauer wants all gay people, as did his predecessors, to come out of the closet. But, and here's where he breaks, and this is what makes him a gay conservative, the only issue on the platform of gays should be the issue of gay legality, that is, equal rights, uh, legal rights for gays. There should be no commitment by gay organizations to any other political issue 
like women or like the poor or even like transsexuals. Transsexuals, he says, are really heterosexuals. They should have their own political movement. It's, got, it's no concern of gay men and women. So he wants the gay movement to be strictly concerned with the right, the, the political, the, the legal rights of gays, and get rid of all this other left-wing baggage. Uh, individual gay people can choose to support the poor or transsexuals or whatnot, but the, as a movement, uh, you know, as, as in terms of lobbying groups, that's not our concern. He doesn't actually say that he's a, a, a conservative. In fact, he claims that he's a Democrat and he had voted for uh, Bill Clinton in 1992. Uh, but he, he doesn't want that to be a gay. Uh, gays should be free to have whatever politics they want outside of the issue of uh, gay legality. Secondly, there's nothing that he hates more than gay pride parades. And he wants them abolished. Not legally abolished, but he wants gays to stop doing it. And the main thing he doesn't like about gay pride parades is precisely the gender matter. He hates dykes on bikes, and above all, he hates uh, drag queens and, and other flamers who are doing nothing but providing the, the fundamentalist right with an opportunity to make videos that they can put into their, you know, the gay agenda propaganda that they send out and show you what, what it's going to mean when gays, you know, get their way. So he says, stop feet, you know, providing with his fodder, butch it up, be like me. I'm invisible. I, I'm as manly and as, you know, I'm talking about Bruce Bauer now. <laughs> as, any, as the next guy, I'm as presentable. I'm as, you know, I, I fit the stereotype of what it means to be a, a, a male male as, as well as anybody else. The only difference is that I, my sexual interests are in the, in the same sense. So the end of gender uh, nonconformity. And he actually makes, uh, he, he has a theoretical position on this. Then he says, uh, Effeminacy and mannishness in, in lesbians is simply a product of oppression. It's a product of the closet. As soon as people come out and gay liberation has happened, it will disappear from the face of the earth. It will, there will be no more effeminate men or masculine men, or they will diminish to such a tiny number that it won't matter. Uh, you know, so that you, you not only by, by coming out, you'll solve the issue, it'll go away. Uh, so that's, a, again, a, a, you know, a point at which he and most gay conservatives have broken with gay liberation. And finally, as you might also have anticipated, uh, he also wants them, the gays to break with their history of, of uh, sexual promiscuity, to embrace monogamy, to embrace fidelity, to settle down with their mates and behave just like any other bourgeois American uh, pair would. So th th there's a critique... There's the continuity in the matter of coming out and identity, a, a radical break on the issue of your political associations. Being gay has nothing to do with politics. Two, the question of gender, and three, the question of sexual behavior. Um, and he tells you, you know, he's a God-fearing, uh, church-going, monogamous, and he's, I think he's an Episcopalian, in fact, man, who settled down with his boyfriend uh, and... Uh, you know, wants to wants to succeed in the usual uh, 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 domesticated American fashion. And I could illustrate this this uh, story also through, uh, through autobiographical material. It's very interesting to look at the autobiographies that's been written in the last five years, where the issues have changed uh, in conformity with this. Not that they necessarily are conservatives, uh, but they've bought into this much more assimilationist picture of what it means to be a gay person than you had uh, 30 years ago. Andrew Sullivan is, is the more prominent of these two, and there are many other uh, 
conservative gay intellectuals. He, he wrote an article, a very influential article, in the actually same year in 1993 in the New Republic, called uh, The Politics of Homosexuality. And he sort of elaborated this argument two years later in a book-length form, uh, uh, what, in a book called Virtually Normal, both quite, quite influential, in which he, uh, he's less harsh than, uh, or less emphatic than Bruce Bauer before him on the issues of gender and sexual behavior, although he sees the, the merits of them. But he uh, agrees with him about uh, isolating the gay issue from all other political considerations. But above all, he puts forward categorically the proposition that the solution to the problem of gays in our society, the, the way in which the, you know, the gays are truly going to achieve full equality and full integration into the society is precisely the legalization of gay marriage. That gay marriage you know, should not only be invented, but it should become the law of the land. Um, <coughs> And I think, you know, it, interesting, we now probably think of gay marriage, which is a much contested issue in this country, as sort of a left-wing issue. But in fact, from an intellectual point of view, it got put on the, on the, on the agenda really by figures on the right and embraced most emphatically by figures, uh, by conservatives. And indeed, a number of gay thinkers on the left are very unhappy about the fact that the, the national organizations that represent gays in this country have, in fact, embraced marriage as the centerpiece of their ideology and their, of their platform in the last 10 years. And see, these folks on the left say this is a complete sellout, a complete abdication of everything that the gay liberation stood for. It is the caving in to heterosexual norms. It's the embracing of a reactionary conception of, 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 of gay identity and is to be regretted for that reason. Uh, I need to say this, these people are a minority and they are something of a voice in the wilderness. I try to give them quite a bit of attention in my book because I think this is, it's interesting to see that this critique, which is very much says that the issue of sexual variety and variation and of gender nonconformity are central to what gay liberation stood for and ought to be defended to this day. Uh, but they've lost the argument as far as the national organizations are concerned who have put marriage and uh, 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 actually a second issue you've probably all thought of uh, at the center of the platform, that is, besides marriage, gays in the military. Because uh, it was conservatives who also insisted that the two things that gays should be allowed to do if they want to achieve full integration and equality is get married and serve in the military. Uh, and uh, they, are, they are great critics, of course, of the, the, the military ban, don't ask, don't tell. Uh, interestingly, I think that that dimension of the you know what happened in the nineties is on its last legs. It will not survive the Iraq War. Uh, I think it's going to be you know kind of eliminated legislatively within within a few years. But gay gay marriage is going to be contested much longer. Uh, and one of the things that intrigues me most about gay marriage is precisely is that it's it's this wonderful issue that it's hard that that is politically. Uh, ambiguous, and that many people perceive it, the Christian fundamentalists, for example, as the end of the world, as a, a deeply radical. It's going to be the end of Western civilization. Whereas, uh, whereas in fact, uh, people who are themselves on the right, gays who are themselves on the right, think it is the ultimate source or you know, answer to the question of uh, regularizing, assimilating, and giving full equality to gays. So you can be construed as either radically you know, revolutionary or deeply reactionary and has been per perceived as both. Maybe that's the perfect formula for success, to have both the right <laughs> and, 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 and the left talking about it. 
Now, so people are sometimes thinking, why, why did this change take place? Why did we go from gay liberation to the situation where gay conservatives have come, you know, into existence? And uh, where the platform of the gay movement has, uh, has moved from, uh, uh, you know, issues of gender nonconformity and sexual liberation to marriage and the right to serve in the, in the military. It's not that they've totally given up on some of these earlier issues, but that, that's where we are, I think, now, ideologically. How did this change come about? One element I'm, I'm, I'm positive in, in the change was, of course, the AIDS epidemic of the 1980s, which not naturally, in an immediate and, and concrete sense, took and did a lot of damage to the uh, libertarian sexual ideology of the 1970s because it was precisely the forms of sexual behavior that grew out of that that was the source of the, of the epidemic. Almost everybody who writes about this agrees, and there's bathhouses and so forth, uh, the, the source of, of it among gay men anyway. And that's why it happened in such powerful numbers, high numbers in San Francisco, New York, and so forth. And they were, these institutions were closed down. There's a critique of them and, and so forth. And uh, so, the, you know, the, the idea that we ought to put our money on mono monogamy and s sexual propriety had this practical uh, motive that came out of, as I say, gay liberation. But gay liberation also had a, a very interesting and unexpected political effect, and that is it brought gays to visibility to a much larger portion of the population, and in a very sympathetic fashion. One, as sufferers, and who's not going to be sympathetic with people who are suffering and dying, and also in terms of the reaction, the response of the gay community to this crisis, both lesbian, in fact, particularly lesbian women, uh, but also the, the gays who were, you know, who, who were still healthy, who, you know, the, uh, re responded heroically to helping these people and taking care of them and so forth. So this would be, uh, politically speaking, actually did gay people, gay men in particular, a lot of good. And you can see manifestations of this, uh, culturally speaking, in the famous 1993 movie for which Tom Hanks won an Academy Award, uh, uh, gay, uh, Philadelphia, which is all about a gay lawyer uh, who's, fired by his firm and so forth, and which attracted a crossover audience. If you went to see this movie in 1993, what was striking about the people in the multiplex with you is that they were straight people, families and so forth. Uh, so uh, ironically, the AIDS epidemic, which was transformed, of course, with the introduction of new drugs in the mid-1990s into a manageable disease in this country anyway, I think had, had, had this, uh, was one of the influential factors in this political change. But in a way, even, even AIDS was part of, of, I think, a larger reality that, that changed the politics, and that is the, the reality of success. It was precisely because gay liberation had succeeded in putting this issue on the agenda and changing a lot of people's minds, or, you know, through people becoming visible and everybody knowing somebody who's, who's gay and it turning out not to be the end of the world and so forth, that you have a different kind of public attitude in the, in the 1990s from the 1970s, which is precisely a reflection of the success to, in, that uh, the gay liberation movement has made in, in, in getting people to come out and be visible and break, break from the closet. Uh, in other words, it's no longer the kind of dangerous thing in the 1990s that it was in the, or scary thing that it was in the 1970s. And in this respect, it's just like every other uh, movement in the history of, of American politics, maybe everybody's politics. Movements that begin in, in a kind of radical and oppositional fashion eventually succeed and produce, you know, a different kind of politics. 
So the civil rights movement has, you know, has produced gay African American conservatives and, and acceptance. You know, if you go from Martin Luther King to Clarence Thomas or Thomas Sewell, there's a reason for that. Likewise, likewise, the women's liberation movement eventually will, will produce its Phyllis Schlafly, you know, and, and become regularized and precisely because it is successful. So it seems to me with with uh, gay liberation, it is no longer exclusively the left wing enterprise that it was uh, 30 years ago, and it's you know it, 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 it's very interesting to me that even even a supposedly conservative president like George Bush will not talk against it. If you watch watch Bush's rhetoric, there's no gay baiting in it. That he treats this issue by not talking about it. You know, because he's got a vice president who has a lesbian daughter, and he knows that there's no political money to be made, except, of course, with your conservative base, and you let your you let your Jerry Falwells and so forth do the talking for you. You don't have to talk homophobically. Uh, you can talk. You can talk high tolerance. So that's that's what I see as the as sort of the big story, uh, as it were, in, what, in what's happened to gay people in this country in the in the. Uh, last three decades. I wanted to end with something that might seem slightly off the wall, but uh, you may find interesting. In, in, in the last, what, six months or so, I, like a lot of people, have been obsessed with this movie that many of us have probably seen, Brokeback Mountain. Uh, it's interesting as, as a movie, obviously, it's a work of art, because it's, it's quite, quite terrific, obviously, and very moving. But it's also, of course, interesting as a cultural phenomenon or even a political phenomenon. Uh, as you probably know, uh, the, 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 the plan in, uh, of, uh, of the gay, of the, of the fundamentalist right was not to say anything about this movie on the assumption that it would nobody, no you know, um, uh, broad heterosexual American audience is going to go see uh, gay cowboys, or a, scene, a movie in which, at least in a very brief and delicate scene, these two men have sex, anal sex for that matter. That 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 that'll that'll keep. You won't have to worry about this movie because nobody's going to go see it. Uh, now that it's of course become a crossover success, and it is in fact just like Philadelphia before it showing up in the multiplexes and a lot of straight people. It's called a, a great date movie. You hear now all the time. <laughs> are going to see it. They're they're seeing that, and then I was won the Academy. These all these Academy Award nominations. They're mounting. They're thinking again about how what to do, do about it, which is maybe to, 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 to you know, mount a campaign against it. Although they haven't really gotten going on that yet, and I'm I'm gonna, it's going to be very interesting to watch to see see what happens. Now. Uh, I've, uh, you know, this movie can be experienced in a lot of different ways, and I think you probably know the, what the sources. Of, uh, well, I'll tell you a little bit about this. You know, it's based upon a short story that was written by this quite wonderful uh, American short story novelist named Annie Proulx, P-R-O-U-L-X. A short story uh, to which is quite faithful. I mean, it's quite accurate. The movie is quite faithful to the story, and she was in fact involved in the in the making of the movie. Uh, a story that was written in 1997, or at least published in 1997. So it's you know recently in the in the New Yorker, and in this uh, in a later essay which this Annie Pearl's written about the movie. She's you know a fan of the movie. She tells how she got the idea uh, for the story. Now, if you've seen the movie, you know it is about these two gay men who are working as sheepherders, and crucially, it's set. It begins in 1963. 
1963, in other words, before the gay movement. And, of course, it's set in Wyoming. And, uh, you know, Wyoming in 1963 was a place in which homosexuality, at least at any discursive or intellectual level, didn't exist. I mean, there's no gay culture there. There's no anything. So these, this is, it's, you're, you're giving the impression of these two guys absolutely alone. Indeed, the most of the movie, they are alone out in the hills taking care of these sheep. Uh, who bed down together and then come back to see each other once or twice a year at Brokeback Mountain or someplace else in the country going fishing, in which they have this romantic and sexual relation over the course of 20 years. It goes from 1963 to about early 1980s, in when the, the, the one of the, of the men is killed, maybe killed by, by you know, gay bashers. It's not, not altogether clear, either in the story or the movie. Uh, and we're left with the... With the Broken heart, the sadness of the uh, other man, the, the 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 more closeted of the two. But both of them, both of whom have, in the meantime, early on in their lives, gone off and gotten married to women, and produced families. And, and we see as much of those families and, and those wives and children as we do of the relationship between the two men. Uh, now. It's very. I found the author that any pools to explanation of, of this story very interesting. It's not based on historical research on her part, where she went out and you know, found out how did gay people who happen to be gay cowboys live in 1963 and how did they manage. And what, if I want to represent this story, how should I do it? That's not what happened at all. She was sitting in a bar in 1997 or 1996, you know, in the 90s, in the period I've just been talking about. When she says she happened to see an older man, probably in his late 60s, you know, in the bar, and this older man was not looking at the girls, the pretty girls who were doing this and that, and that but at the boys who were playing pool, the young men who were playing pool. And she said, I imagined to myself, I wonder if he was country, she calls it country gay, and if he was, what his life might have been like. And so then she, in her mind, in her imagination, she constructed this idea of, of, of this romance that might have happened between two cowboys in the 1960s, when this guy would have been the right age, when he would have been 20 or 19, and what would have happened to them. And she imagined them you know, meeting, falling in love, uh, realizing it in a sexual sense, but then it was, of course, impossible as a life. There was nothing to do about it. So they go back to their hometowns individually, get married, raise a family, uh, but since they are in love and since they are, sexually speaking, they desire one another, they keep coming back. And the, it, there's an interesting difference between the two in that the, the one of them, the Jake Gyllenhaal character, actually has the notion that they might have a life together and will occasionally say, you know, we could get a farm, we could settle down, we could raise sheep and so forth and have a life. And the, uh, the, the Heath Ledger character, the blonde character who's... Uh, says, no, you can't do that. You know, if you can't change it, the famous line, if you can't change it, you got to stand it, which means you got to accept that we live in a heterosexual world, and there is no such thing as two men living together. That's not doesn't happen. So you're, you're, you're struck by the fact, well, this is, isn't this a wonderful representation of the way it was before gay liberation, the way it was 30, 40, 50 years ago, particularly in this part of the country, because if you went to New York City or San Francisco, even in the 1960s, there was a gay community, you know, but it was uh, among certain social and uh, intellectual circles. There was none in, in, in Wyoming. So you could say that what's really going on here is you're getting a very interesting story about a historical moment in the history of the experience of gay, a certain kind of gay men. 
And I think that's, that, in a way, is, is, is correct. But there's another way to think about this story, and that is to put emphasis on the fact that the, 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 the story was written in 1997, and it's been filmed, of course, in 2005, or four and five, and came out in this last November, and is now being seen by a large, not just gay, but you know, crossover audience in this country. And that is, and this is my, my take on it, that it is really a movie about gay marriage. That it is really, in fact, at a deep level, in keeping with this changed ideological situation that I talked about earlier, in that what you most profoundly feel about this, these two men is that they ought to be able to get married or to live as if they were married. That is, to move in together, to have a family together, uh, to have a life together. Because clearly they, what they're most interested in is a kind of traditional domestic relationship, a one-on-one monogamous relationship. There's no suggestion that they're interested in gender transformation. They're uniformly butch, uniformly manly. Uh, they would do fine in the army. That's also kind of implicitly a critique, I suppose, of don't ask, don't tell, because these guys would make great soldiers. Yeah. Uh, there's no, and they don't, there's very little suggestion that they, what they want is a life of a, kind of an open marriage in which they can have each other, but also have lots of affairs on the side. Uh, they, 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 like, they seem quite traditional in their, in their sexual desires. One of them goes off and has a, you know, picks up a prostitute or a trick in Mexico at one point, but it's only because he only gets to have sex every six months or once a year. And it's clear that if he, if he had his druthers, he would settle down with this guy and make, make a marriage. And, of course, this is imp- implicit also in the fact that these guys do get married to women. And the story that you're told about these marriages is that they're phony, inauthentic, and a misery to the women whom they marry and who love them. And one of the most powerful things in the movie is the misery that uh, uh, Heath Ledger's wife, uh, who is actually his real wife in, in, uh, in, in real life, suffers as his on-screen wife in the story. Uh, it, so it also becomes about not only the a- absent marriage that doesn't happen, but the real marriages that do happen and that are uh, ruinous to all concerned. So you get you know, real marriages, legal marriages that are bad, and an unrealized marriage that could, in theory, and we're given every reason to believe, could have been perfectly uh, satisfactory. Now, I'm, this means I th- I'm looking forward in the next year or two uh, to the emergence on the gay left, on the queer theory left, of a critique of this movie precisely from this point of view. Because when Philadelphia came out in 1993 and all of it was embraced by you know, the mainstream and did a lot, of good, a lot of good politically for gays, there's no question about it, it was much hated by gay radicals and, and, and queer theorists, precisely because it refused to allude even to these men, this man having a sexual life. In, in the story, I don't you know, remember this, Tom Hanks has a boyfriend, played by the beautiful Ant- Antonio Banderas. They never so much as lay a hand on one another in the story. It's as if their relationship is entirely spiritual. And this was drew the ire, <laughs> drew the ire of the, of the folks who represented gay liberation and, 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 the, and the critique. Uh, they're going to they're come out of the woodwork, too, and complain. They're going to see what I've just suggested, that, that in fact, Brokeback Mountain may seem to be a critique of life, gay life before the closet, or before, before gay liberation, gay life in the closet in the, in the 60s and so forth. But it's also, I think, in a profound psychological or emotional way, about what gay life could be now, namely a life of, in which gay men got married, 
and uh, avoided the catastrophically bad marriages to women that were their want uh, 40 years ago. So that's just that's my hypothesis about how this movie will go down intellectually. I think, from in terms of the the, the great unwashed population, it's going to continue to function. It's a, you know a brilliant political. If we're looking at this one, it's a brilliant political document, which has been brilliantly marketed by the the people who made it, who very cleverly figured out that you know that they should release this only in Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York to start with, and then word of mouth would spread its. Uh, quality to, to the larger population before the cultural and religious right could mount a campaign against it. And that's precisely what has happened. In other words, the fundamentalists have been outsmarted <laughs> by this, <laughs> the Hollywood business community, if you will, on how to make, how to make this work, movie a success. All right, I'll, I've talked longer than I expected to, so I'll stop there and let you contribute your two cents worth. Yeah. A lot of the things that you spoke about had to do with men, which is great. Yeah. And right now there's something that lesbians are doing a little bit differently, or perhaps in greater numbers than men, which is having children, building families. And that's something that's happened really come, come in greater numbers recently. I wonder if you have any comment about what Sure. It obviously, it started with lesbians, but it has crossed over to men now. Uh, when I asked the students in my class who were undergraduates how they anticipate spending their lives, virtually all of them now, Gay men and gay women anticipate settling down with somebody and having children. There's a wonderful autobiography written by a guy named Dan Savage, six years ago now, called The Kid. Dan Savage is a, a gay man and lives in Seattle who's a, a sex advice journalist. He's like the Roxy Sass of, uh, of uh, Washington State. He writes, you know, uh, what's it called? Savage Love, the advice column, which mostly heterosexuals write in for advice on the assumption that a gay man will know more about sex, <laughs> including straight sex, than anybody else. But he subsequently then wrote, he, he's a man in his early 30s now, I suppose, maybe mid-30s. He decided he got a new boyfriend. And he decided he was tired of the rat race. He was tired of the, the sexual rat race, which had been, I think, somewhat extravagant in this case, and uh, was going to get out of it. And they, they, they decided they would adopt a kid. And the book, the, the, the book called The Kid, is about the year he spent with his boyfriend uh, realizing this adoption. They adopted a, a, a little boy from a, a street person, a, a girl who was pregnant on the streets. And they'd spent, it was an open adoption, so they'd spent a lot of time with her and so forth. So it's all about giving up the traditional gay male life and settling down and becoming parents. And I think that is increasingly going to be the gay autobiography, the male autobiography. Women obviously preceded, lesbians preceded, but I, I think they established this narrative, if you will, and did it in greater numbers. Uh, but I don't think in the future is going to be a lot of difference between gay men and gay women on this issue. I think it is the future for both both parties. And of course, that is also a kind of assimilating, uh, conservatizing uh, movement, if you will. And I, I see it very much, particularly in, in these undergraduates I'm teaching. And they love this book. They see it, they see their future in this, in this story. Yeah. Um, you mentioned um, Andrew Sullivan and his book, Virtually Normal. And I think the good thing about his book is that he does summarize the various um, intellectual points of view in the book. He's also spoken here, by the way, yeah, I know. a couple of years ago. And uh, my understanding in listening to him speak is that he's actually uh, toned down a little bit of his uh, right-wing part and he's uh, becoming a little more towards the middle. 
Um, so that's the, the good thing. Maybe, uh, I'm wondering what, what is your opinion about what might be termed more identity politics, that is identifying gay people as a group, then securing for that group civil rights versus a method of securing behavioral pattern rights for people, all people yeah. on the planet. Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure I know. I, I think identity politics aren't what they once were. I think the, their high point was in the 60s and 70s and that they've weakened. And that, uh, in a way, what, what Sullivan and these people represent is the toning down of the identity element in, in, in their politics because they're saying that our politics don't, shouldn't be di different from anybody else's politics except on this one issue, the issue of, gay, of legal rights. But uh, you're right about Sullivan in that he's... He never was as uh, extreme on certain issues as, as Bruce Bauer is, but he's a big fan of the, of the Iraq War. He's a big fan of the Bush tax cuts. He's a big enemy of the so-called nanny state, which means Medicare, uh, you know, help, you know, the safety net, and so forth. Uh, he's a, even a, a critic of hate crimes legislation. He dis detests hate crimes legislation. So I, you know, I, it's true he's he's on the left. Uh, uh, on certain issues, he's a big critic of the the Bush administration's execution of the war, uh, and he's a big critic of, of of their spending. But that's a kind of, from his point of view, a conservative. He's a he's a Thatcherite. He wants a small government. He's a libertarian. You know, mm -hmm. let people do whatever they want in their private lives, but keep big government out of the out of the, of the story. So I, he would claim, and he's writing a book about it right now, that he's true conservative, and these folks that are running the, the present administration are bogus. So I'm not sure his politics are, in fact, moving that much. And uh, certainly on foreign policy, he's as uh, scary as ever, as far as I'm concerned. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? That, uh, he's also opposed to the military policy and has argued vigorously against that almost from the beginning. Yeah. So actually, I think we're out of time. Um, but you may come and see me. Yeah, though. if you want to stick around and ask questions, I think that'd be just fine. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.